This is the final episode of Historia Obscura. At the end of the episode, I will announce the winner of the autographed Gerald Ford Letter Giveaway. Thank you all for listening to this podcast for so long. Enjoy this one last episode. On April 26th, 1865, John Wilkes Booth, who was on the lam for having assassinated U.S. President Abraham Lincoln two weeks prior, was finally neutralized at a farm in Northern Virginia. His fate came at the hands of a gunshot fired by Boston Corbett, a U.S. Army sergeant. The bullet severed Booth's spinal cord and paralyzed him on the spot. After Booth's death two hours later, Corbett was asked why he shot Booth. He reportedly responded, quote, Providence directed me. That sentence is perhaps the best view into the mind of Boston Corbett. Born Thomas Corbett in London, England, Corbett had emigrated as a child to Troy, New York. He spent his teenage years working in a hat factory, and it is believed that the mercury used in the manufacturing of hats caused him to develop schizophrenia and psychosis. After moving to Boston, Massachusetts, Corbett became a devout Methodist. He was baptized under the name Boston and worked as a street preacher in the North End. On the night of July 16, 1858, Corbett encountered two prostitutes who sought to service him. Disgusted by the incident and fearing that he would be tempted by prostitutes in the future, Corbett ran home and proceeded to cut off his testicles with scissors. He then attended a prayer dinner, and it was only after that he sought treatment. During the Civil War, Corbett served in the 16th New York Cavalry Regiment, and he was regularly disciplined for yelling at officers for taking God's name in vain. After being court-martialed and narrowly avoiding execution for insubordination, Corbett was captured by the Confederates in June of 1864 and sent to the infamous Andersonville Prison. Suffering from scurvy and malnutrition, he was freed as part of a prisoner exchange five months later. After tracking down and killing John Wilkes Booth, Corbett continued his life of street preaching and hat making in Danbury, Connecticut and Camden, New Jersey. He then moved to Kansas and became a clerk for the state legislature, but in February of 1887, he brandished a revolver in the state house after a security guard claimed that Corbett was lying about having killed Booth. Corbett was arrested and sent to a mental institution in Topeka, Kansas, which he escaped from in May of 1888. He then moved to rural Pine County, Minnesota, where he built a cabin in the forest. Boston Corbett was never seen again after that. He is believed to have died in the Great Hinckley Fire on September 1st, 1894, at the age of 62. As I've discussed in past episodes, Americans of mixed-race ancestry are becoming more and more common as different ethnic groups in America intermarry with each other over time. 
What's really interesting is how some ethnic combinations are so prevalent and concentrated in a specific area that they develop their own distinct cultures. Perhaps the most famous example of these groups are the Louisiana Creole. The Louisiana Creole first emerged in the 18th century when France colonized present-day Louisiana. Many French settlers in the region intermarried with the free descendants of African slaves, creating their own dialect and traditions in the process. Somewhat similarly, the Black Seminoles are a prominent multi-ancestral ethnic group in Florida. During the early antebellum period, many escaped slaves in the south fled to the regions of Florida controlled by the Seminole native tribe, and intermarriage between the two groups was fairly common. When the Seminole were forced to move to Oklahoma as part of the Trail of Tears in the 1830s, the Black Seminoles went along with them, and most reside today in Oklahoma. Perhaps the most unexpected ethnic group in the U.S. that emerged from two different groups are the Punjabi Mexicans. At the turn of the 20th century, many impoverished Indian men from the state of Punjab moved to California to work in the agriculture and lumber industries. Shortly thereafter, a mass migration of Mexican immigrants, including women, to California took place as a result of the devastation caused by the Mexican Revolution of the 1910s. The thing is, due to restrictive immigration laws, laborers were not allowed to bring their families with them to the U.S. Due to race-based labor laws, neither Punjabis nor Mexicans were allowed to enter into romantic relationships with black or white Americans. Thus, due to the loneliness of many Punjabi and Mexican immigrants, the two groups began to engage in relationships with each other. Many Punjabi lumberjacks began learning Spanish just to speak with Mexican women working in cotton fields, and hundreds got married and started families. The cuisines of the two cultures were often combined with each other, with some families creating recipes incorporating Punjabi foods like chicken curry into Mexican dishes like enchiladas. Although cities in the Central Valley of California like Yuba City and Sacramento were the primary location of Punjabi Mexican concentration, some Punjabi Mexicans could be found as far away as El Paso, Texas. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 100th and final episode of this podcast, and I can't believe that I have even made it this long. It has truly been a pleasure sharing my passion for history with all of you, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to listen to this podcast of mine. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara, Cameron Sherman, Scott Sherman, David Kahn, Lisa Chase, and Tom. Although all of my prior episodes have each focused on one specific topic, I've decided to change it up for the last episode. There is so much I haven't covered that I still want to, so I'll touch on as many of these subjects as I can. I hope you enjoy it. As the world's most remote and least habitable continent, Antarctica isn't home to a lot of people. Antarctica's population fluctuates between 1,000 and 5,000, but this varies seasonally. 
as scientific missions are more likely to go to Antarctica during the Southern Hemisphere's summer. It is rare for people to live in Antarctica without being scientists, but it's happened before. To preface, seven countries claim land on the island of Antarctica. Australia, France, New Zealand, Norway, and most importantly, Argentina, Chile, and the United Kingdom. The Argentinian, Chilean, and British claims overlap with each other, which shouldn't really matter because nobody actually recognizes Antarctic claims as part of a nation's sovereign territory. The British government has never particularly cared about the disputing claims, as its actions in Antarctica are overwhelmingly for scientific development. Argentina and Chile, however, used to care a lot, particularly when they were both being ruled by fascist dictators. By 1976, Jorge Rafael Videa was the military leader of Argentina, while Augusto Pinochet was in control of Chile. Believing that establishing a permanent civilian population in Antarctica would strengthen their country's respective claims, Videa and Pinochet authorized the creation of Argentinian and Chilean civilian settlements on the continent. Esperanza Base, a town with a peak population of 116, was established by Argentina, while Villa Las Estrellas, with a peak population of 150, was established by Chile. One Argentinian military captain stationed at Esperanza base on Antarctica, Jorge Emilio Palma, was instructed to bring his pregnant wife with him to the settlement. Videa believed that an Argentinian child being born in Antarctica would make Argentina's claim to the land indisputable. On January 7, 1978, Emilio Marcos Palma was born at Esperanza base. Later that year, Marisa de las Nieves Delgado became the first girl born at Esperanza base on May 27, 1978. Not wanting to be outdone, Chile soon followed up with an Antarctic birth of their own. On November 21, 1984, Juan Pablo Camacho was born in Villa Las Estrellas. Interestingly, Camacho became the first baby conceived in Antarctica. In total, 11 babies, 8 Argentinian and 3 Chilean have been born in Antarctica, none of whom have died, making Antarctica the continent with the lowest infant mortality rate. Esperanza Base and Villa Las Estrellas remain the only two civilian settlements in Antarctica, and both Argentina and Chile, while no longer run by fascist dictators, still run flights to Antarctica on their national airlines. On April 6, 2022, Vladimir Zhirinovsky, the leader of the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, died at the age of 75. The name of the Liberal Democratic Party may imply that Zhirinovsky was a Western-oriented moderate reformer and a breath of fresh air from the authoritarian Putin regime. However, Zhirinovsky and the LDP were about as far as one could be from the description of liberal democracy. Back in 1989, as the Soviet Union was about to fall apart, Zhirinovsky founded the LDP as part of an effort to unify Russia's right-wing ultranationalist population against the liberalizing reforms of Mikhail Gorbachev. When that failed, Zhirinovsky began advocating for the re-establishment of a czarist absolute monarchy in Russia. During a 1993 electoral campaign, 
Zhirinovsky called for the government to facilitate a higher birth rate by subsidizing vodka for men and lingerie for women. Zhirinovsky threatened to drop nuclear weapons on Ukraine, Poland, Germany, and the Baltic countries, as well as into the Atlantic Ocean to create a tsunami that would flood the United Kingdom. During the First Chechen War, Zhirinovsky proposed nuking Chechnya before scaling back his idea to merely dropping napalm on the territory. For those of you who know what happened to Chechnya during the Second Chechen War, both of these options would have probably been more humane than what Russia actually did. More broadly, Zhirinovsky called for all Muslims in Russia to be interned indefinitely, and for Russia to ban the entry of all foreign Muslims. Zhirinovsky also accused Jews of controlling the American government, even though his own father was Jewish and had four cousins who were killed in the Holocaust. In 1996, he wrote a book titled My Struggle. If you want to know why that's significant, Google Translate it into German. Zhirinovsky has had various approaches to relations with the United States. For most of his life, he called on the Russian government to either buy back or invade Alaska, reportedly calling the state, quote, a great place to put the Ukrainians. Zhirinovsky supported the 1996 presidential campaign of controversial right-wing nationalist and Holocaust denier Pat Buchanan, while referring to Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard David Duke as his, quote, favorite American politician. In a 2003 speech criticizing the Iraq War, Zhirinovsky accused President George W. Bush of having daddy issues and not being able to count, while saying that National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice would be less hawkish if she were to have sex with a group of Russian soldiers. Zhirinovsky was highly critical of President Barack Obama, repeatedly threatening to bomb the White House, although he greatly admired First Lady Michelle Obama's childhood nutrition reform efforts. During the pro-Donald Trump Capitol riot of January 6, 2021, Zhirinovsky tweeted, quote, Be brave, Donald. We're with you. You'll get help from abroad. Although Vladimir Zhirinovsky was almost certainly the most bizarre politician of his time in Russian politics, he received almost 10% of the popular vote in the 2008 Russian presidential election. In 2014, a referendum to determine whether or not Scotland would become independent of the United Kingdom failed by a margin of 55% to 45%. Although it did not pass, the initiative garnered attention for the Scottish nationalist movement and also caused many to wonder why Scotland and England, two originally separate kingdoms with their own distinct cultures, became one nation. Well, a critical failure of a bold Scottish project can certainly be given some of the blame. By 1690, England had started building what would become the world's largest empire, fully colonizing Ireland and establishing settlements in North America and India. In the hopes of becoming a strong mercantile power like its southern neighbor, Scotland made plans to set up its own colony in the Darien Gap of Panama. The Scottish government was convinced that the Isthmus of Panama could be easily traversed in order to attain access to the Pacific Ocean. The Company of Scotland was founded in 1695 to facilitate overseas trade, and in July of 1698, 
five Scottish ships carrying 1,200 colonists set off for Panama. By November, the Scots had arrived in the land that they called Caledonia, but the scheme quickly went awry. The colonists were ill-prepared for the disease and physical geography of the Darien Gap. There was also the slight issue of the fact that the natives of Panama, as well as the Spanish Empire, were also trying to maintain control over the Darien Gap. Dysentery and fever ravaged Caledonia's capital of New Edinburgh, and when valuable resources ran dry, the leaders of the colony started paying the colonial laborers in alcohol, causing many to drink themselves to death. Not knowing that the mission was failing due to an inability to communicate, Scotland sent another expedition of over 1,000 more people to the Darien Gap. By January of 1700, 10 Scottish colonists in Caledonia were dying every day, and the Spanish began laying siege to New Edinburgh. Finally, Spanish commander Juan Pimenta ordered the Scots to surrender, telling them that no quarter would be taken if the Spanish had to mount an assault on the settlement. Thus, the Scots of Caledonia had no choice but to sail back to Scotland with their tail between their legs. Of the almost 2,500 colonists who were sent to Caledonia, fewer than 200 returned to Scotland alive. The Caledonia debacle was a national embarrassment for Scotland, but it got much worse once it was realized that as much as 40% of Scotland's GDP had been invested in the failed colony, and all of it was lost. The value of the Scottish ceiling crashed, and an economic crisis in the Scottish lowlands ensued. Seeing an opportunity to expand her empire even further, Queen Anne of England offered Scotland a deal in which Scotland's national debt would be erased and its currency stabilized to the English pound sterling if the two countries were to be united into one. The Scots agreed, leading to the passage of the Acts of Union in 1707, and with that, the United Kingdom of Great Britain was born. I've covered some pretty bizarre military operations in my time making this podcast, but Operation Paul Bunyan has to be one of the most petty. For context, the Korean Demilitarized Zone, or DMZ, marks the border between North Korea and South Korea. It has been under constant patrol since the 1953 armistice that brought an unofficial end to the Korean War. The most famous part of the DMZ is the Joint Security Area, where North Korean and South Korean soldiers stand perpetually face to face. This area is where diplomatic engagements between the two countries occur. On August 18, 1976, a group of American soldiers working under the United Nations Command in South Korea were monitoring the Joint Security Area when they decided to trim the branches of a 98-foot-tall poplar tree that were obstructing their view. A group of 14 American and South Korean soldiers, led by U.S. Army Captain Arthur Boniface and First Lieutenant Mark Barrett, were sent to prune the tree. Shortly after the crew began trimming the branches, North Korean People's Army Senior Lieutenant Pak Chul arrived with 15 North Korean soldiers and ordered the trimming of the tree to stop. When Boniface and Barrett refused to halt the trimming, a truck carrying 20 more North Korean soldiers arrived, and the Americans and South Koreans were once again told to stand down. Seconds later, 
Pak ordered the North Koreans to attack with axes. Boniface and Barrett were both killed in the altercation and 11 of their soldiers were wounded. Outraged, the U.S. Army immediately sought revenge, but South Korean President Park Chung-hee refused to allow artillery to be fired at North Korea out of fear of escalating the conflict. U.S. President Gerald Ford agreed, but still wanted a show of force against North Korea, so Operation Paul Bunyan was devised. Three days after the killings of Boniface and Barrett, on August 21, 1976, a convoy of over 800 American and South Korean soldiers, 27 helicopters, 23 trucks, and a tank were sent into the joint security area. Their mission? Cut down the tree. 16 military engineers with chainsaws carried out this task while the rest of the unit stood guard. North Korea was not informed in advance about the endeavor, but within minutes, 200 North Korean soldiers arrived and took aim at the engineers. But once they realized they were outnumbered, the North Koreans had no choice but to silently watch as the tree was felled. Operation Paul Bunyan was carried out in 42 minutes and ended without a single shot being fired. And arguably, it did its job very well. For the first time since the end of the Korean War, the North Korean government accepted responsibility and apologized for the killing of American soldiers at the DMZ. Professional baseball has had some long World Series droughts, and all of them have come with their own associated curses to explain why a team went winless for so long. According to the Curse of the Bambino, which was broken in 2004, the Boston Red Sox went 86 years without a World Series win due to the trading of Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. The Curse of the Black Sox, which was broken in 2005, held that the Chicago White Sox did not win a World Series for 88 years due to the Black Sox scandal in which eight White Sox players conspired to throw the 1919 World Series. The 108-year World Series drought of the Chicago Cubs, which ended in 2016, was speculated to be the result of the curse of the Billy Goat, which emerged after a Greek immigrant and his pet goat were kicked out of a World Series game. Arguably the most unique baseball curse was the curse of the Colonel, which was held by the Hanshin Tigers of Nippon Professional Baseball from 1985 to 2003. During the 1985 Japan series, in which former MLB slugger Randy Bass hit three home runs and was named MVP, Hanshin managed a massive upset victory over the Cebu Lions, winning their first ever championship. A celebration in the city of Osaka ensued, in which a crowd shouted the name of every player, after which a bystander resembling each player would jump into the Dotonbori Canal. But when the crowd got to Bass, there weren't any bearded white guys on hand to jump into the canal, so they found the next best thing. They raided a nearby KFC and chucked a plastic statue of Colonel Sanders into the canal. According to urban legend, the ghost of the deceased Sanders was outraged at the treatment of his likeness, and so he placed a curse on the Hanshin Tigers. Every season for the next 18 years, the Tigers placed last or second to last in the league. 
but in 2003, the Tigers unexpectedly made it to the Japan series, marking what is generally considered the end of the Curse of the Colonel. Although the Tigers lost to the Yomiuri Giants, Hanshin fans were so excited by the end of the curse that over 5,000 of them jumped into the canal once again. Tragically, 24-year-old fan Masaya Shitababa drowned during the celebration, leading many to believe that the curse would continue until the statue was removed from the canal. In March of 2009, most of the statue was recovered, but the colonel's left hand and glasses were never found. According to the Hanshin Tigers fanbase, the Tigers will not win another Japan series until the left hand and glasses are found. This assumption seems to be correct, as the 1985 Japan series remains the only championship ever won by the Hanshin Tigers. U.S. Route 1, the longest north-south road in the United States, has its northernmost terminus in Fort Kent, Maine, at the border with New Brunswick, Canada. Route 1 runs south along the east coast of the United States before reaching its southern terminus in Key West, Florida, a city at the end of the Florida Keys archipelago. In March of 1982, the U.S. Border Patrol created a temporary roadblock just north of the Card Sound Bridge on Route 1, where vehicles were searched for narcotics and undocumented immigrants. Since Route 1 is the only road that connects the Florida Keys to the mainland United States, the Key West tourism industry took a major hit from the slowdown of road travel. Key West Mayor Dennis Wardlow attempted to get the roadblock lifted by way of a federal injunction, but this effort failed. According to Wardlow and the Key West City Council, the roadblock was functionally akin to a border crossing between two sovereign countries. Then, Wardlow and the council had an idea. If the U.S. government was going to treat Key West like a separate country, Key West would become a separate country. On April 23, 1982, Wardlow declared that Key West was an independent nation called the Conch Republic. In this same ceremony, Wardlow was made Prime Minister, at which point he immediately declared war on the U.S., broke a stale loaf of Cuban bread over the head of a man dressed in a U.S. Navy uniform, and promptly surrendered, requesting $1 billion in foreign aid from the U.S. government. Although the Conch Republic's declaration of independence was not taken seriously by anyone, the spectacle did bring national attention to the inconveniences experienced by the Florida Keys. As a result, the roadblock was lifted only a couple weeks later, and Key West actually experienced a boom in tourism due to the, due to the novelty of the Conch Republic. Over a decade later, on September 20, 1995, the U.S. Army Reserve's 478th Civil Affairs Battalion carried out a training exercise in Key West to simulate an invasion of an island country. Since the local government of Key West had not been informed of this operation, Wardlow, who was still mayor at the time, decided to treat it as an American invasion of the Conch Republic. As U.S. Coast Guard ships approached the Keys, Wardlow sent the historic schooner Western Union out to intercept the American fleet. The crew of Western Union threw water balloons and more stale loaves of Cuban bread at the ships. 
Western Union was forced to surrender after the American ships fired their water hoses at the schooner, but the next day, Wardlow was vindicated when the U.S. Department of Defense issued an official apology to the city of Key West for carrying out the training exercise without notifying the city. Although he is no longer mayor of Key West, Wardlow remains the prime minister of the Conch Republic to this day, and Key West residents continue to use the demonym Conches. Interestingly, there is still a sign above the arrival terminal at Key West International Airport that reads, quote, Welcome to the Conch Republic. Especially in recent years, some U.S. presidents have had family members with questionable legal records. As is a frequent subject of discussion in contemporary politics, Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, has been under federal investigation since 2018 for illegally purchasing a firearm despite having a drug use conviction. In 2011, Omar Okesh Obama, the uncle of President Barack Obama, was arrested in Framingham, Massachusetts for driving under the influence before being deported back to his home country of Kenya two years later. But perhaps no presidential relative compares to Billy Carter, the younger brother of President Jimmy Carter. Similarly to his brother, Billy Carter's origins were not in the political world of DC, but rather in the military and on his family's peanut farm in rural Georgia. The younger Carter also loved a good beer, and in 1977, shortly after his brother was inaugurated as president, the Falls City Brewing Company began producing a brand known as Billy Beer. Although Billy Carter became the spokesman for the brand, Falls City stopped making Billy Beer after just a year. But as many soon realized, Carter didn't just enjoy promoting alcohol, he enjoyed drinking lots of it. Carter famously drank half a gallon of whiskey every day, and during his brother's presidency, he was even seen urinating on the runway of an airport while foreign dignitaries were disembarking from their planes. In February of 1979, Carter checked into a rehab facility in Long Beach, California, where he remained for seven weeks. After being released, Carter reportedly never touched alcohol again. However, other issues soon emerged that were way worse. In early 1980, it emerged that Billy Carter had made trips to Libya over the previous two years and was a registered foreign agent of the Gaddafi regime. For this, he received a loan of over $200,000, but reportedly only paid back $1,000 of it by the time it was discovered. Carter's status as a Libyan agent became the subject of a Senate investigation in 1980, and the scandal became known as Billygate. Jimmy Carter even had to address the issue publicly, stating, quote, I am deeply concerned that Billy has received funds from Libya and that he may be under obligation to Libya. These facts will govern my relationship with Billy as long as I am president. Billy has had no influence on U.S. policy or actions concerning Libya in the past, and he will have no influence in the future. Billy Carter never faced criminal charges for his relations with the Libyan government, but he went bankrupt due to his unresolved debts. Consequently, he was forced to sell his home and his share of the Carter family's peanut farm in order to pay off these debts. On September 25, 1988, 
Billy Carter died from pancreatic cancer in Plains, Georgia at the age of 51. During the Cold War, the NATO members of Western Europe found themselves at odds with the Soviet bloc of Eastern Europe. But for part of the Cold War, a similarly named conflict was happening concurrently between two Western nations that most would never think would fight each other. This was the Cod War, which emerged from a dispute over the distance of a nation's territorial waters from its coastline. Since an International Court of Justice decision in 1952, international law has generally held that territorial waters extend out to four nautical miles off the coastline. Iceland in particular supported this decision, creating an exclusive fishing zone in their territorial waters, which angered the United Kingdom as British fishing vessels wanted to fish off the Icelandic coast as well. In 1958, Iceland tried to extend their territorial waters to 12 nautical miles, but the British refused to abide by this change, continuing to fish within this zone. In response, the Icelandic Coast Guard attempted to seize a British fishing vessel in September of 1960, but the British Royal Navy threatened to sink the ship if this occurred. As a result of this debacle, Iceland initially threatened to withdraw from NATO and expel all American troops from Iceland, but this threat was rescinded after Iceland's new territorial waters claim was recognized in March of 1961. However, the issue emerged again in September of 1972, when Iceland attempted to extend its territorial waters further to 50 nautical miles due to a fish shortage. This annexation was interestingly opposed by the rest of NATO, as well as the Warsaw Pact, although the non-aligned Organization of African Unity supported Iceland, as Icelandic Prime Minister Olafur Jonahansson framed the Cod War as a struggle against colonialism and imperialism. The British continued to fish within 50 nautical miles of the Icelandic coast, so the Icelandic Coast Guard began utilizing net cutters attached to the sterns of their boats to sabotage British fishing vessels. These razor-sharp net cutters could also be dangerous weapons, as evidenced by an incident in November of 1972 when a German sailor on a ship escorting a British vessel received a severe head injury from a net cutter. The only fatality of the Cod War occurred in August of 1973 after the British Royal Navy ship HMS Apollo collided with the Icelandic Coast Guard ship ICGV Ager, damaging Ager's hull. Icelandic engineer Haldor Hafridsson attempted to weld the gash in the hole shut when the compartment he was in flooded, electrocuting him to death. In November of 1973, Iceland and the United Kingdom agreed to end the conflict. Iceland would have its territorial waters claim of 50 nautical miles recognized, and the United Kingdom would be given permission to catch 150,000 tons of fish until 1975. In November of 1975, another crisis nearly occurred when Iceland expanded its territorial waters yet again, this time to 200 nautical miles. In February of 1976, 
Iceland formally severed diplomatic relations with the UK, but these relations were restored in June of 1976 when a similar deal was struck, recognizing the Icelandic claim and giving British temporary fishing rights. Today, Iceland and the UK remain NATO members and close allies. I hope you enjoyed the final episode of Historia Obscura. I truly can't thank all of you enough for listening to this podcast of mine. I've covered centuries worth of topics across every continent of the world. I've talked about wars, battles, and crimes. I've talked about peace building, reform, and innovation. All of this is history, and I am proud of my historical interests that I've shared with you. The end of this podcast is a bittersweet one, but I hope you will all continue to study history in the absence of Historia Obscura. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, the winner of the signed Gerald Ford Letter giveaway. Congratulations to Instagram user at srgawhan for winning the contest. This user's favorite Historia Obscura episode was Huey Long, the most benevolent demagogue. Thank you to all who entered this contest. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off.